At Capella University, you'll get support from people who care about your success. From before you enroll to after you graduate, pursue your goals knowing help is available when you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Planning an international trip and want to learn the language of your destination? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. Well, interest in Stoicism has experienced a renaissance in recent years, yet despite the increasing popularity of this ancient philosophy, misconceptions still abound about it. For example, many people assume that to be Stoic means to not feel or express any emotion, including happiness, and that Stoicism requires one to live a bland and spartan lifestyle. My guest on the show today debunks these myths and shows that Stoicism can actually enrich our lives and allow us to experience real happiness. His name is Bill Irvine, and he's a professor of philosophy and the author of A Guide to the good life, the ancient art of Stoic joy. And in our discussion, Bill shares the origins of Stoicism and how the Romans modified Greek Stoicism to fit their culture. We then get into the specific Stoic practices you can implement today to start improving your life. For example, Bill shares the power of negative visualization, how to approach things you have some but not complete control over, and how to purposely inject discomfort in your life to increase your grit. Bill then explains the Stoic duty of socializing and how to maintain your Stoic serenity, even with the most difficult of people. We then discuss what the Stoics would have thought about political correctness and microaggressions and some of the critiques against stoicism if you've been wanting to understand stoicism more but haven't known how to get started this podcast is a great introduction and it is packed with not just background information but actionable advice make sure to check out the show notes at aom.is stoic where you can find links to resources where you can delve deeper into this topic all right bill Irvin, welcome to the show oh, it's a pleasure to be here thank you for asking me to be a guest so I'm a big fan of your work. You've written a book about insults and how to handle them, which I, I, I enjoyed quite a bit. And it segues nicely with this book that we're going to talk about today. It's The Stoic Art of Joy. And what I love about the book, it's such a, it's such a great introductory book to the topic of Stoicism. You get into the history of it and also just details about Stoic, specific Stoic practices. But let's talk about your history with Stoicism before we get into Stoicism. You're a philosopher. You teach philosophy, but you came to Stoicism later in life. Before you discovered Stoicism, what sort of philosophy did you focus on in your career? Well, I, I got into philosophy because I, in high school, uh, late high school, I developed an interest in Henry David Thoreau, and he was referred to as a philosopher. So I thought that by taking philosophy courses in college, I could go deeper into uh, what he was doing and what uh, other like-minded people have been doing, only to discover that modern philosophy, at least in the United States, has pretty much lost its interest in coming up with stuff that's applicable to life as we live it. The exception to that would be uh, the branch known as ethics, which is trying to tell you what's morally obligatory and what's morally forbidden. But most of the choices and some of the most significant choices we make in daily living aren't ethical choices, but there's uh, just questions about what should I be trying to accomplish right now? 
and what's the best means for me to accomplish it? And what do I need to do in order to have what on balance will be a good life? And I found the classes I was taking were oblivious to such questions. I stuck on with it, though, and, and knew that if I uh, wanted to get a job teaching philosophy, I had to had to uh, master that portion of the philosophical discussion. So I did, but then it was much later that it dawned on me that that uh, I was becoming an old man and still hadn't found a philosophy by, by which to live, and wasn't that a a sad state of affairs. And then I kind of did the next step. So I, I had uh, fiddled with uh, Buddhism for a while. I decided I was going to write a book in which I explored Buddhism. And so a- as an aging uh, human being, I decided I needed to adopt a philosophy f- for living. And the one that attracted me initially was Buddhism. I decided that what I would do is do research for a book on Buddhism, and I had two goals in doing that. Number one is it would count as a publication, which would be good for my career. And number two, I thought that by doing the research into Buddhism, I could convert myself into a functioning, practicing Buddhist, so I would get a double return on this investment of research time. But a funny thing happened uh, along the way, and that is that in order to be complete in my research, I had to have a section on the philosophical views in the ancient world, at least, to philosophy for living. And started looking into Stoicism, very quickly realized I had a misconception about who the Stoics were and what they were after. And before I knew it, I was practicing Stoicism in a low-grade, experimental kind of way and uh, was surprised by the impact it was having on my life. So by the time the book was done, I no longer had an interest in being a Buddhist. I decided I was going to be a practicing Stoic. So what were those misconceptions you had about Stoicism that made you to you know, write it off for so long? Well, it was the standard misconception that Stoics, the capital S Stoics, uppercase S Stoics, were also lowercase s stoical, and that is that their goal was to suppress all emotions and simply bottle themselves up so they became oblivious to the kinds of disasters that that the world would present. And what I discovered is that they weren't anti-emotion. They can better be described as anti-negative emotion. So they drew the conclusion from their observation of humanity that we human beings experience all sorts of negative emotions, and it's, it's our own fault that we do. So negative emotions like, like anger, like grief, like envy, and you can fill out that, that list considerably. Those are things that disrupt our days and disrupt our lives. And yet, uh, it dawned on the Stoics that to a considerable extent, if we're experiencing those emotions, it's self-inflicted. It's because of certain values we've adopted. It's because of certain strategies for living that we've chosen to use. And so we have it in our power to change our goal in living and to change the strategies we use. And we can thereby make those negative emotions they never disappear from your life, but you can diminish their impact on you. At the same time, the Stoics had no, no problem at all with uh, experiencing positive emotions. 
for instance, one of my favorite positive emotions is uh, the feeling of delight. And uh, as a Stoic, you're delighted by any number of things that normal people will take utterly for granted. And then you have perhaps the ultimate positive emotion, and that is a feeling of joy, this disembodied feeling of of just gratitude that you get to be part of this universe populated by these people. So it's a wonderful thing to have, wonderful thing to experience. And the Stoics said there's nothing wrong with that. So for me, that worked wonderfully well. Now, before I go any further, if there are uh, practicing Buddhists in your uh, audience there, they shouldn't take this as a put down of Buddhism. I'd be the first to say that what works for some people might not work for other people. And given my own uh, intellectual uh, frame of mind, Stoicism just works a lot better for me than Buddhism does. So let's talk about the history of Stoicism. It's often associated with the Romans, Seneca and Cato and Marcus Aurelius, but it got its start in Greece. What What is Stoicism's pedigree? Did it have any connection to the other schools of philosophy that were in ancient Greece, like the Academy or uh, you know, Plato's school? Yes. Back then, a school of philosophy would literally be a school. You know, now if we say school of philosophy, it's it's just kind of a system of thinking or something like that, but it would be literally a school. If you wanted to make your living doing philosophy, you started a, a school. Now, if you had a school that taught purely theoretical things, probably you wouldn't get very many students because the people of that time, this would be 400 BC, you know, in Greece, had other things on their mind. You know, they had things that they needed to worry about. But if you had a school that promised them or that offered them advice on how to have a good life and maybe brought in other kinds of theoretical material at the same time, then you could get students. And so what they had at that time was multiple uh, competing schools. You know, and the analogy I use in the book is it's like schools of martial arts today. You know, if you tell me that you want to want to develop your ability to do street fighting, you know, then I'd say, well, take a look at, uh, go online, and you'll find there's any number of rival schools, and some will tell you how to fight with your hands, and some will say, no, you need to bring in your feet as well. And, and then the question is, which of those is going to work best for you? The same went true, was true in the ancient world with respect to schools of, of philosophy. You would have had many different schools to choose from. The schools would have offered different advice on what your goal should be in living. And the schools also would have given you different strategies for attaining whatever they took to be the thing of value. So you had some schools that said party hard. You had other schools that said, and this would be the Stoics, if you want to have a good life, what you need to do is first realize that the thing of greatest value in life is tranquility. And then secondly, they said, and if what you seek is tranquility, here's the way to attain it. So it's an interestingly different approach to philosophy than what you find in modern colleges, for instance. Another thing to realize is that with respect to ancient Stoicism, it started out with the Greeks. And the problem is most of their writings have been lost. So 
we have only but by report we know of, of most of the things they had to say and then the second thing is when the romans acquired stoicism when they decided they were going to start their own stoic schools they put a different spin on it and the whole notion about tranquility as the goal is really more closely associated with the romans than with the greeks Right. So, I mean, I think in the, a lot of people don't realize, I think when people hear Stoicism, they think about the ethics part, right? These sort of Stoic practices to maintain tranquility. I think that's because of the Greeks, but a lot of people don't realize that the Stoics also thought about sort of the theoretical. They had schools of logic and ideas about physics. How did though their idea of physics and logic influence their ethics, I guess is the question I'm trying to get at. Um, the physics, it's harder to see why that would, would tie in. And, you know, if you were a, a parent uh, choosing a school of philosophy for your, for your kid, you want your kid to come out a well-rounded person. And so you want him to acquire ability at reasoning, for instance. You want him to acquire at some level of knowledge of the world. You want to, him to acquire, if he was going to be a lawyer or a politician, the ability to put together a cogent argument which required logical skills and also the ability to spot the mistakes in the arguments of others and claim if you really cared about your kid, one of the principal takeaways from uh, education would be an understanding of what, what in life was most important and how to get the thing that was most important. And of course, uh, colleges, you know, in the world today, will teach a career, but they have very, very little interest in in saying to you, well, and here's what's worth having, and here's the strategy for getting the thing worth having. So if you go to college now to become a lawyer, you're, you're going to get a, a lot of uh, advice on how to be a lawyer. But, you know, unless you went out of your way, the advice on how to live is, is very much in the background. Why do you think we're so tepid to teach students about, you know, acquiring a philosophy of life? Because that's like, I mean, you make the case in the book, that's probably the most important thing you can have because it will guide all other decisions you make in life. I think it's because we aren't confident that we possess such a, a philosophy. And, and as you've heard me already suggest, uh, I, I don't claim to have the answer, but I have an answer that works really well for a lot of people and an answer that works better by far than what the default answer would be. I mean, so most people, what do they do? If you ask them, what is it you want in life? They will. Now, maybe not in the direct way I'm going to state it, but they will uh, suggest that what they're pursuing in life is wealth and fame. That if you're really famous and you have a ton of money, that means you've had a good life. And there are any number of counterexamples to that claim, but that seems to be what people are working on. That's the kind of the default. So first thing you can do with a philosophy of life is to try to talk people out of that default setting that they're on and then increase their chances of coming up with a better answer. So one thing modern colleges could do is expose students to a wide range of philosophies of life and then let the students choose. And uh, they, if uh, nothing else, by doing that, what they could accomplish is to show people that it's possible 
to live in a thoughtful manner in uh, pursuit of some ultimate goal rather than just following the crowd and assuming that every other person around you has done their homework on this issue because most of them haven't. They, they've simply gotten into default mode where what they're interested in is fame and fortune. So let's dig into some of these specific Stoic practices you highlight in the book. The first one is negative visualization. So this is basically thinking about, you know, the worst possible outcome. How can thinking about what could, everything that could go wrong, how, how can that actually lead to more happiness? Okay. Well, if the advice were to dwell on negative outcomes, then it would be terrible advice because you're going to be a, become a, quickly a horribly depressed individual and you're just going to go around moping about how sad everything is. But that isn't their advice. Their advice is that you should allow yourself to have flickering thoughts. So a flickering thought is the key phrase about how things could be worse. And it is amazing, number one, whatever life you are living, things could be worse. Things could be very dramatically worse than they are. I mean, if you're telling me about how bad your life is, hey, guess what? You've got the ability to speak. There are people who don't. You know, there are these interesting cases of people who not only lose the ability to speak, but lose the ability to communicate in any way. You know, they have what's called locked-in syndrome, and they might be able to blink one eye. Well, if you can tell me how miserable you are, you're not in that situation. And so guess what? Things could be worse. And people have that thought, and then they realize, you know, it's true. Things could be worse. So yeah, you don't dwell on it because that'll just turn you into a neurotic worry wart. What do you do? Like, I mean, if, I mean, I think this would work well for folks who, okay, they're they're living a comfortable life, and you're like, okay, I, I my car is totaled. It could be worse. I still I can take care of this. But like, what if like, I mean, you're destitute. Uh, does this is this still effective? I mean, it could, I mean, you're like hey, uh, at least you're still alive. I was like, well, I'm alive, but things are terrible. Do you think that the negative visualization works even if like your life is actually really, really, it's like rock bottom? You know, we have the stories of ancient hardships. So there was Musonius Rufus who was exiled to the Greek island of Hyaros. And it was a desolate rock. Now, there were some fishermen who lived there, but otherwise it was nothing. So from the, the Romans' point of view, well, we aren't going to kill him. We're going to let him live, but we're going to put him on this rock. And then the interesting thing was that uh, he was able to find things to be thankful about, even under those circumstances. You know what? If, if you have that ability in you, you are pretty much bulletproof to uh, an incredible extent. So life can, can really abuse you in a number of ways, which is unfortunate. But the key thing is you don't become a broken human being as the result of it. Now, Seneca, the Roman Stoic, was at the other end of the spectrum, and he got in trouble with Emperor Nero and was eventually sentenced not just to death, but to death by suicide. And the accounts are that despite that particular fate, he remained uh, an upbeat, complete human being until the last uh, moment, which is startling to think about. Okay, so another Stoic practice you talk about in the book is the Stoic trichotomy of control. This is actually, you modified an original Stoic idea. What was the original Stoic idea and how did you modify it? 
Um, the original idea might be called the dichotomy of control. So it, it's a dichotomy. It's either one or the other. So when it comes to the issues in your life, uh, the Stoics said there are those that you can control and those that you can't control. And you're foolish to spend your time thinking and worrying about things you can't control because, after all, you have no control over them. And I kind of tampered with that a little bit. I think I clarified it because if you think about it carefully, there's actually three different possibilities. There's things you have absolute control over. And that might in, in include your, your beliefs. It might include your desires, although maybe that's arguable. There are things you have absolutely no control over, such as whether the sun's going to rise tomorrow. You obviously shouldn't concern yourself with those things. But, and the Stoics didn't make this clear. It seems like there's this middle class of things where you have some but not absolute control. For instance, how people treat you and how they relate to you. If you treat everybody terribly, they're, they're going to be mean to you probably. And if you're nice to everybody, there's a good chance, but it's not a sure thing that they're going to be nice back to you. So, uh, but again, the stoic advice would be you should really concern yourself with things you have complete control over. One of them would be your character. You should work very hard to develop your character since you have complete control over that. You should care very much about it. You should not allow yourself to think for even a microsecond about things you have no control over because you don't have control over them. And then there's an intermediate amount of thought to those things that you're going to have some but not complete control over. You know, and, and then there's all sorts of qualifications that come in, although you you may have zero control over whether an event happens or doesn't happen. You might have considerable control over how the event affects you. So you can take preventative measures, you can take measures to make things not as bad as the other wise might be, and the Stokes were absolutely fine with that. But if you uh, look at the people around you and maybe even think about yourself and you realize there's a whole bunch of just time wasted, thinking, worrying, dreading things that you don't have any control over. And, you know, life is precious and to spend it on that is a pity. And then also not to spend the time, the investment of time on things you do have control over, like your uh, personality that's also tragic because that can have a huge influence on your life and you do have complete control. And so if you're ignoring it, shame on you. So where do emotions play in this trichotomy? Because I think there's a perception out there that Stoics believe like you have complete control over your emotions. Did they think that or was it something different? No, uh, Stoics realize that emotions are a, a, a real issue for uh, human beings. And so when it came to emotions, first thing they did is they distinguished between negative emotions and positive emotions. So negative emotions include anger. They include envy. Envy is a, a really terrible negative emotion, underrated in the damage that it does. Positive emotions are feelings of joy, are feelings of delight. And the Stoics had nothing against the positive emotions. In fact, they thought we should live our life in a way that would increase the number of positive emotions we experienced. But they also thought we should go out of our way to reduce the number of negative emotions we experience. They also realized that it was impossible for us ever to get 
the number down to zero, but we could reduce the number dramatically. For, for instance, in their discussion of, of grief, they said that if someone you uh, know and love dies suddenly, that, that grief is, is the natural emotion. And so you, you will feel it. And, and in some sense, you should feel it, but you should, you should, Keep it within its proper confines. And he describes people who, you know, the, a decade after the death of a spouse were still mourning the death of a spouse. Well, that's just, that's just too much. So they acknowledged the existence of emotions. They welcomed some emotions and they thought we needed to, to work on techniques for limiting the damage that the negative emotions could do to us. And they have some ideas on how, how we could do that. Yeah, I guess one of them was, I guess Seneca was like, you know, imagine your son's already dead was one of them. You should not imagine that he's dead, but you should have a flickering thought that the, a realization and acknowledgement of the fact that he he will die. And first, when people hear that, oh, actually, that was Epictetus who kind of most famously said that. But when people first hear that, they think, well, what a terrible, terrible thing to to think but the stoics would say just the opposite i will just allow myself to have the flickering thought that this might be the last time i see that friend and it really is remarkable because then the next time i see them it's it's this delightful event you know because it didn't have to be that way so it's curious you know that they were they were some of the preeminent psychologists of their time and they have these insights that to our modern ears sound just crazy but if you you know like the idea that by thinking about people dying we can actually improve our relationships with them but i encourage your listeners to to give it a try again don't dwell on the deaths of other people that's that's a recipe for a miserable miserable existence but this whole notion of a fleeting thought that you allow yourself to have about bad things that can happen. It's wonderfully easy to do, and it's wonderfully effective. At least that's that's what I found in my own life. So with this part of the trichotomy where there's things you have control over but not complete control over, what's the stoic approach to those things so that you, you put some effort into it, but you don't vex yourself too much? How should you go about those items? Yeah, the example I give of that in in uh, my book, Guide to the Good Life, is I talk about tennis match. So it's in that middle ground. There are some things you can control, some things you can't control. So how do you prepare for a tennis match? Well, you do the best you can to prepare for it. And that might mean getting coaching. That might mean practice. That might mean you know how much you sleep the night before. That, that'll mean a whole variety of things. So that's the part you can control. So you exercise the control you can. But here's the thing. Suppose that despite that, that you lose the match, then a Stoic's approach would be, well, so what? I did the best I could. And if that wasn't good enough, that means the other person is, is simply a better player than I am. And I'm, I can live with that. But that whole notion of in life, you know, pick your challenges and then do the best you can on those challenges. And then win, lose, or draw. You know that's it. Uh, you 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 uh, you aren't don't allow yourself to get upset over it because that is the best you can do. And to ask yourself or to blame yourself for not doing better than the best you could do, again, that would be another recipe for a miserable life. Now there there are people who do that, 
and they do seem to have miserable lives and it's avoidable and isn't that tragic right that sounds awful awful lot like uh, warren buffett's inner scorecard he has this idea of he keeps an inner scorecard he doesn't really worry about the externals he just as long as i'm doing what i know i'm supposed to be doing everything's fine Sure. And I'm a competitive rower. And so, you know, I'm out there racing against other boats. I don't win very often. I do come in last place some of the time. But internally, what am I actually doing? I'm racing against myself. I'm uh, causing myself a degree of needless discomfort. How come to build character? So what counts as success in a race? Well, doing the best I could. Well, what if I'm last place? Well, the question is, did I do the best I could? And did I get the value out of the training that I hope to get out of the training? You know, it teaches you other things. One of them it teaches you is self-discipline. It's a chance to, to practice a kind of courage, a very valuable thing. It's a, a, a chance to practice the strategy of uh, when things look hopeless, just keep trying. And, you know, there are a lot of people that when things look not, not even hopeless, but just they don't look like sure things, they stop trying. And that's a, that's a bad thing because there's so much of life where, you know, really just a bit more effort on your part can make a huge difference in the outcome. So let's talk about fate. Fate's a big part of the Stoic philosophy. It's because fate is a part of nature and you have to just accept fate. But being a fatalist seems very passive. And you're just like, well, you can't do anything about it because that's what fate had in store for you. So how did the Stoics approach fate where they accepted it but still try to be active in their life? Stoics, again, would do a kind of division here. They would say you should be fatalistic with regard to things that have happened in the past, and you should be fatalistic with regard to whatever is happening to you at this very instant, because you can't change those things. So you can either accept them the way they are, or, or you can make yourself miserable. But they weren't fatalist about, fatalistic about the future, so you can have an impact on what happens in the future. So we're kind of back to the dichotomy of control. So it makes, your, it, makes it sensible for you to invest time, energy, intellectual uh, processes into trying to shape the future. But then when that future arrives, you can't change it. It's there. So what do you do? You make the best of it, and then you, you go on to whatever is going to happen the next day. You look forward to tomorrow. But there are people who... It's a strange thing, but they're perpetually hoping for a better future, and they're perpetually disturbed, disgusted, dismayed by whatever life they happen to be experiencing at, at that very moment. Downside is that means they get to spend their entire life dismayed, disturbed, disgusted. So, uh, you know what? Embrace the life you find yourself living while simultaneously trying to improve that life in, in various sorts of, of measures. I mean, when you're a Stoic and you look around at, at how people are living, and you know, the, the same is probably true of other philosophies of life. If you're a Buddhist and you look around at how people are living and you're struck by how needlessly miserable so many people are. It's the choices they've made and it's uh, the kind of techniques they use for dealing with life that seem like they should work, but there's just massive amounts of evidence that they, they simply don't work. And, and that's, that's too bad. That's just too bad. Right. You also mentioned throughout the book different practices Stoics did 
to toughen themselves, not only psychologically, but physically. Do you have any favorites from the Stoics of these sort of daily practices to toughen the mental hide? Well, I call it uh, exercises in voluntary discomfort, right? Where you're going out of your way to do something that you know is going to be difficult and uncomfortable to do. And so I give some examples. One is underdressing slightly for for winter weather. You know what? Uh, underdress too much and you can get frostbite and that's no fun at all. But to kind of go around thinking, you know what, uh, I'm going to allow myself to get a little bit cooler than I normally would. Or in summer, I'm not going to turn on the air conditioning quite as much as I normally would. What happens is you expand what, what you might refer to as your comfort zone. So there will be people that you encounter who have obsessed over keeping the temperature to within two degrees, you know, Fahrenheit. And their goal, and it's one of these paradoxes, their goal is is personal comfort. But because they've got it so narrow, the range which they, they can operate, they're inevitably going to experience discomfort because they'll move around, things will change, they'll go places, and it won't be their ideal temperature. Whereas if you're used to a, a, a wide range of temperature, you'll be comfortable in a huge range of, of temperatures. And it's, it's really interesting because, you know, in, in, uh, in rowing, I'm rowing in short sleeves and in shorts. You know, well into the fall, early in the spring, uh, there are days that are exceptions. And I'm out there when it's hot as well. So as a result, I, I come away with very wide range of comfortable temperatures. I accomplish that. You know, similar thing about food. If you're a gourmet, you're probably going to get less pleasure out of food than if you simply take whatever food has been placed in front of you and you try to extract the maximal amount of delight from that food. You got it made if you can experience delight over a glass of water. Ordinary water too, you know, not bottled stuff that you paid extra money for. But if you can be happy drinking a glass of water, you're you're uh, you're in a, in great situation as far as being able to be pleased by what life has to offer you. So this is interesting too. I uh, you you highlight in the book is you know most most of our vexations I feel like in life are caused by other human beings, family members, just an annoying coworker. But instead of, I thought it was interesting about the Stoics, instead of becoming hermits and avoiding these people in order to maintain Stoic serenity, the Stoics felt duty-bound to be out there and interact with other people. Why did the Stoics feel like they had a duty to interact with these, these people that causes most of our problems in life? Uh, what was going on there? Okay, the Stoics thought we have a social duty, you know, to, to be with and to try to help and relate to our fellow human beings. But that didn't go as far as saying we had to go out of our way to find the most miserable company that we could. And for one thing, it's going to be a very depressing time for us. For another, there's a good chance that we won't be able to help those people. You know, there are people whose idea of a relationship is simply to stand there and complain about everything. And that person's, what that person needs is major change in kind of their approach to life. 
so what, what, what do you do? You, you try to be helpful to other people. And, you know, I, I, I never go around preaching stoicism because I found it's, it's a great way to, to lose people's attention. But you know what? You can throw these little bits of Stoic advice, and you don't even necessarily attribute them to Stoics, and you can thereby make a difference in people's lives. So somebody's worried about something, and you know, just to throw out uh, you know a suggestion like, "Well, is there anything that you can do to to change this?" Well, no. Okay, then don't worry. And you know, it's interesting how that can have a profound impact. How somebody can sort of realize, you know what, he's he's got a point there. Well, one other thing about adults is they, they have to be ready for for whatever advice comes along. Uh, you know, another thing is you can lead by example in, in a way. If people can sense that in your own life you're, you're thriving, then they, they get curious and they wonder, well, what, what's he doing? that I'm not doing. And if you're miserable, people learn from that too. Same kind of same kind of thing, the opposite lesson. What's he doing that I should avoid doing? Yeah, but it's it's a strangely paradoxical philosophy and goes against what most people think is common sense. But then again, lots of people are pretty miserable. Right. So maybe we shouldn't maybe we shouldn't pay attention to what most people go by. So there's a lot of talk these days about like trigger warnings and microaggressions and insults and slights and political correctness. What would the Stoics say about these ideas? Um, Stoics thought that uh, it, we should become insult pacifists, that we should simply refuse to play the insult game, that when insulted, we should simply carry on as if nothing had happened. And they can take criticism. I mean, as, as a Stoic, I'm, I'm uh, always on the lookout for people who can teach me something important about something I don't know. So I'm perfectly open to that and seek that out. And so I, I grant people what I, I, I think of internally as mentor status. So I, I don't go around telling people they've been granted this, but there'll be somebody I realize knows a whole lot about something. And then the plan is... Uh, what you do is you, you you listen very carefully, you take mental notes, uh, and if that person says something critical about what you're doing, then you, you take that seriously. That's what you're looking for. You're looking for feedback. So that isn't, that isn't an insult. That's a useful suggestion. Now, there are other people, though, who, being usual people, are used to playing the insult game. And so there'll be all these put-downs and everything else. And then, so Stoic's point of view is you shrug it off because look at the source. Look at the source. You get angry when dogs bark at you. Hope not, right? And if you do, uh, that's silly because dogs, you know, don't bark for good reasons. I don't know. I'm not a dog. Maybe they do. But dogs bark because that's just kind of their reflexive way of responding. And that's how how humans are. And then the other deeper stoic insight with insults is that if you ignore insults, it's deeply disturbing to the person who insulted you because he's out to, to hit you. He's out to hurt you. And he realizes he hasn't accomplished his goal. So we've talked a lot about some of these Stoic practices, and I, and I, and I think it's fantastic. But you know, Stoicism has gotten a lot of criticism by in the world of philosophy. I know Bernard Russell, 20th century philosopher, said that there's an element of sour grapes in Stoicism because, you know, it's like, well, 
I can't get that thing, so I just don't care. I'm indifferent to it. How would you respond to that that, that criticism towards Stoicism? A, a lot of philosophers, professional philosophers who have an interest in Stoicism have an academic interest in, in Stoicism. And so to, to play the academic game well, and I have played the game because it's what you want to do. It's what you have to do if you want to have a career in philosophy. Well, what you do is you, uh, you look at ancient texts that have been already looked at thousands of times. You write a paper about what the text says. So some other academic somewhere else can write another paper that challenges your paper and back and forth. So there are academics who don't understand what stoicism is. For them, it's just an intellectual game that they play as, as part of, of making their living. And those same individuals would reject the idea of a philosophy of life. So it's a curious thing, because that's precisely what the ancient Stoics intended it to be. They said it isn't something you should just think about or write about. It's a way of living. And so I would suggest that the, the person you just described doesn't really comprehend what Stoicism is about. They've picked one aspect of Stoicism and then focused their attention on that and said that's, that's not a, an appropriate thing. Another thing to keep in mind about the ancient Stoics is there's a great divide. Uh, first came the Greek Stoics and then came the Roman Stoics. And with the Roman Stoics, there seems to have been a real change in the focus of Stoicism. Stoicism. <clears throat> and that's where this whole notion of tranquility comes in. The Greeks took a different line that was all about virtue. And so you can actually say in the ancient world, there are probably like two Stoicisms, not, not a single document. But again, if you look at the Roman Stoics, they didn't have the reputation as being these, these soured individuals. In fact, they had a uh, uh, a reputation for being friendly, and in many cases, they they did have friends. They did take delight in life. So, it's a kind of a criticism that uh, rings hollow if you actually look at the ancient Stoics. Well, Bill, this has been a great conversation. Where can people go to learn more about your book and the rest of your work? Well, they can take a look at the Guide to the Good Life: The Ancient Art of Stoic Joy, which was published. Uh, about 10 years ago by Oxford University Press and has gone on to have an incredible life in terms of, uh, you know, sales, longevity, however else you want to you wanna measure it. And I'm absolutely flabbergasted that it has because when I wrote it, I, I wrote it with the assumption that probably nobody in the world's ever going to read this book, but I have a social duty to write it. So that, that, that says it as well as, as I can say, the sorts of things I've, we've been talking about. And it's also, it's not a book written for academics. It's a book written for, uh, for ordinary people who feel that their lives aren't going as well as could be the case and who who want to straighten their lives out in some sense. And also, the advice it offers, it isn't like Buddhism where you might have to practice it for several decades before it starts working for you. You will know within a matter of d days whether you're cut out to be a Stoic or not. And since I wrote that book, there's been uh, a, a number of other uh, Stoic books that have come out. And, you know, you can look on Amazon to, to, um, 
to find out some of the other titles. I've also written a book on insults that is highly stoic dependent. And so people who had a particular interest in that, that book's also published by Oxford University Press. So that's where you can find out more. I also had a, a, for a while there, I had a stoic, a stoic blog going. The title of, of it was 21stcenturystoic.org. And the postings are still out there. I've, I've gotten busy doing other things. So that's actually a way you can, you can get on top of stoicism, at least as seen by me, without having even to invest in a book. Fantastic. Well, Bill Irvine, thank you so much for your time. It's been an absolute pleasure. Oh, thank you for having me as a, as a guest. My guest today was Bill Irvine. He's the author of the book, A Guide to the Good Life, The Ancient Art of Stoic Joy. It's available on Amazon.com. And really, go out there and get it. It's a great book, a really easy read, and a great introduction to Stoicism. Plus, I just love how Bill makes everything very actionable and helps you try to implement this stuff in your life today. Also, check out your show notes at aom.is slash stoic, where you find links to resources where you can delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. For more manly tips and advice, make sure to check out the Art of Manliness website at artofmanliness.com. If you enjoy this show and have gotten something out of it, I'd appreciate it if you give us a review on iTunes or Stitcher. That helps us out a lot. As always, thank you for your continued support. Until next time, this is Brett McKay telling you to stay manly. At Capella University, you'll get support from people who care about your success. From before you enroll to after you graduate, pursue your goals knowing help is available when you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu.